that we love to eat together. Some of you have definitely had a similar experience. We had fellowship lunches and dinners and Thanksgiving dinners and picnics and all these kinds of things over and over again. It was food that brought us together. And so it became, well, you're familiar you know, with the old salutation, you know, fairly well until we meet again. But became, you know, the joke in our Baptist circle, at least, and heard it as well. The joke was, farewell until we eat again. Funny every time. <laughs> but we knew, this is what we did. We got together and we fellowship around food. What is it that does that, that just brings us together? You sit across the table from people and you enjoy together and you just relax and you start talking and you feel like you're getting to know each other a little better and there's just a new bond. I mean, that's been our experience for, you know, we have feed and seed is, is meant for today. Now, we acknowledge that it's not a highly organized feed and seed. We've done it different ways at different times. But how do you plan in the midst of COVID <laughs> isolations and things like that? So this is a freestyle feed and seed. But still, we want to encourage you. If you have availability, grab somebody. If you haven't made a plan, say, hey, let's go to Mr. Ping's or the Bavarian or whatever. Just, you know, get together if you can. We have had the experience of... of times with feed and seed where um, we've had someone you know kind of do a shuffle for us and say okay you're going to be eating lunch with these people and those people and so on and what a blessing to sit down with people who we didn't get to know much before and all of a sudden we felt by the end of that time together that we knew these people better and there was a new love a new warmth between us and it's it's just been a great experience and i highly recommend it and so it's a timely thing that we come to Leviticus chapter 11 today in our study of the book of Leviticus, because here we are looking at the institution of dietary laws for Israel. So this is food and fellowship, beginning with Old Testament Israel, and then we will look later at food and fellowship in the New Testament church. Food and fellowship for Old Testament Israel, we see the institution of dietary laws in Leviticus chapter 11, and if you'll advance our slides couple bumps there. Keep that in the outline. Have you gotten an outline, by the way? I think Noel was copying those out. If you haven't got one, will you maybe raise your, wave your hand in the air and hopefully somebody who has access to the outlines will see you. There we go. Thank you, Lee. Always, always taking up the slack if there is any. Is that, is, Amos, is that a stack right there in the back there? Yeah, okay, great. Thank you. Okay, now wave your hand again. Lee will come around and he'll help you get an outline in your hand. There you go. <laughs> We're going on discount in just another minute. All right, thanks for that. Uh, so the institution of dietary laws, the first thing to note about this is that this was distinguishing the clean from the unclean for the people of Israel. So I want to just begin by reading the whole chapter, and, and I'm inviting you to find your own text. I didn't put this entire chapter 47 verses on the slide, uh, so I didn't put any of the text on the slide. So you need to have your Bible or your whatever digital device that's got the Bible on it available to you. And we're looking at a Leviticus chapter 11, doing a read-through, okay? Now we left off with, we went, first, we went chapters 1 through 10, where we had the establishment of the sacrificial system, right? Talked about the five different types of sacrifices, what their purposes were for, and all the particulars of how they were to be carried out. And we saw that there were instructions for the people in particular in chapters 1 through 7, how they were to approach these sacrifices. 
And then we saw in chapters 8 through 10 how the priests were supposed to help to teach the people, to help them understand and maintain the standards of the sacrificial system, what their purpose was, what they communicated about God, and to help carry those out. And then we saw in chapter 10, at the end of that, we saw a notable failure straight away during, when these things had been instituted. We saw the two sons of Aaron, two of his four apparently, who were serving as, as priests at the altar, and they completely disregarded God's rules for how they were to manage the sacrifices. And in response, God struck them down dead on the spot. I think everybody understood at that point that God was serious about these laws that he instituted. There really was a meaning to them. There was a significance, and it was not to be ignored. And so it is it's in that context, it's on the heels of that event, that we now come to these particular instructions about food. And God is making, is stressing this clean versus unclean, and a person becoming unclean by certain things until evening. Well, why is, why is that significant, being unclean until evening? Well, the point of this is it's in the context of, of tabernacle worship. A person who would become unclean is not allowed to approach God of the, in the sanctuary. You could not go and take a sacrifice or go do anything at the, at the sanctuary, at the tabernacle, if you were unclean. You're unacceptable to God in that condition, in that state of uncleanness. All right? So that was, that's the significance of the context of this. All right, Leviticus 11. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying... Now just note, before God spoke to Moses and said such and such, now we have God speaking to Moses and Aaron. Because we have just established in the last few chapters that now the priests have been given this responsibility. Aaron is the head of the priesthood and his male descendants after him who have now been given the responsibility for the people of Israel to teach them right things and to help guide and govern that they continue to, to follow God's instructions in all of these particulars. So now it's Moses and Aaron sharing this responsibility. And he says, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Okay, so just, that's just the setup. This is God saying, I'm going to tell you what you can and can't eat. Verse 3. This is still significant because this summarizes of all the, uh, the land animals in particular. These are the rules. And it's all summarized in this one verse, really, what they had to walk away with, what they had to remember. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, and choose the cud among the animals you may eat. Three criteria, all of which must be in place. Okay? Parted hoof, cloven hoof, and choose the cud. Well, I guess th those are kind of, those are a couple possibilities, the, the parted cloven. That's two categories there, sheep, deer, a little bit different. Um, but, but they've got to have these divided hooves and something to choose the cud. Verse 4. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat thee. So if it's one or the other, not good enough. The camel, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. Okay? Camel chews, chews the cud, you know, the regurgitation from the multiple stomachs, the, the regurgitation of some food, uh, chewing on it, mulling on it, and and swallowing it. That same word is used in other places for meditation. It's interesting. Though I don't think camels are great meditators. Not sure there's a whole lot going on up there. 
you've ever been on a camel ride, just, yeah. They're just, mine was rather grumpy. Went on a camel ride on the beach, you know, some years ago on one of our family holidays. You know, mine was very grumpy. And he just complained about everything. Maybe it was me. I mean, it was like, get this fat guy off of me. But, but he just kept going, Wah! you know. I tried to converse with it, but that's all I got. So the camel, not to be eaten, because it doesn't qualify on, on both things. It's got a divided hoof, or, or choose the cub, it doesn't have a divided hoof. All right. Uh, the rock badger. Now, we get into some where you're different. if you have a different translation, you're going to have different animals listed here. Um, that's because, in, in all truth, the, the Hebrew, the old Hebrew words for some of these animals, there's not enough other extra-biblical literature to make it absolutely clear what, what particular kind of animal they're talking about in a few of these cases. By context, we can see what type we're talking about, whether it's in a rodent family or you know this sort of a thing. But, but different translators have taken a stab at different things, whether they call it a rabbit or a hare. Well, you know, actually they don't have rabbits in that part of the world, as far as we know, even at that time. But they have hares, so it's probably a hare. That's probably the more technically correct translation. But you get the idea. Right? It's, it's close enough, and it, it's not going to rock the foundation of our faith if, if people are not quite sure what these animals are. Um, verse 5, the rock badger, because it chews the cud, or at least it looks like it. Actually, some of these animals don't actually chew a cud. They just have this. You've seen rabbits and things like that. You see they have a, that jaw movement. But they're not actually literally chewing the cud. And that's maybe why... They're being disallowed here. Uh, it's acknowledging that it looks like they chew, uh, but does not part the hoof. It right? doesn't have a divided hoof. I, I, I don't, you haven't seen a rock badger with hooves, have you? Um, so it's unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, or appears to, but does not part the hoof, no hooves on a, on a hare, is unclean to you. The pig, it parts the hoof, and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud. It doesn't qualify. It's unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. All right, so examples provided just to make it clear. you got to have both criteria, the divided hoof and the cud chewing, and that makes them an okay mammal to eat. All right? Verse 9. Now we're going into water creatures, aquatic creatures. These you may eat of all of that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales. There are our criteria for the water things that can be eaten. Got to have both fins and scales, not just one or the other. So shark, no. Right? No scales. Got fins, definitely. But, all right? Fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or in the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters, of the living creatures that are in the waters, detestable to you. Verse 11, you shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. So kosher Jewish people do not eat seafood. No shrimp. No lobster. No salmon. Verse 13, and we're going to flying things here. Uh, two categories of flying things, particularly birds first. These you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. And here we have apparently the implication you can eat other birds, but these are the ones. This was easier in this case to just disqualify certain ones, and then the rest are fair game. So these 
you shall detest among the birds, they shall not be eaten, they are detestable. The eagle, uh, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, ostrich, night hawk, seagull, hawk of any kind, little owl, cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, I have no idea what that is. Anybody know what a hoopoe is? All right, I didn't, sorry, I didn't pause to look that one up. Um, and the bat. Now, what, what do, at least from what we understand, the majority of these kinds of birds, what do they have in common? What was that, Rachel? Scavengers, right. Carrion eaters, yeah, that's right. So they, they deal in dead things, right? Which means possible uh, easier transmission of disease. Right, but also there might be something symbolic about that because I think we'll see that there's two sides of of these laws, and the one is for health and well-being, and the other is for the symbolism that's involved. Pause there for that. Verse twenty. Now we're going on to the insecty type things, and we have we have a uh, linguistic idiom here that contrasts like the kinds of birds that real birds that stand on two feet to all the winged things that are down on more than two feet. But the idiom is on all fours, because that was applied to other creatures, you know, like land mammals, dogs, cats, bears, whatever. They went around on all fours. In other words, they aren't upright, okay? So it's not that, you know, this isn't a case for scientists to get all up in arms and go, oh, the Bible's incorrect, it doesn't understand. Come on, they don't even understand that insects have six legs, it says four. It's just a linguistic idiom, okay? Things that go down around on their more than feet, more than two feet, not upright. Okay, uh, is just something that was used broadly. So all insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yes, we know they have six legs. God knew this when He said this because He made all six of those legs. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet, which is with which to hop on the ground. So what are we talking about here? Of them you may eat. Well, the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket, the grasshopper of any kind. Those you can eat, okay? Now, they're not high on my menu, but I understand locusts are pretty good, you know, high in protein and stuff like that, and people who live in certain parts of the world, Africa, things like that, have to survive on them sometimes. And sometimes when a swarm of locusts comes in, everybody just, just starts feasting. I, I enjoy those survivor guy shows, you know, Mad versus Wild and stuff like that. But it grosses me out, the things that this guy will eat. Oh, my goodness. But I guess if your life's on the line, you change your values. Um, but so here you go. Crickets. And grasshoppers, locusts, these are okie-dokie, all right? Amongst the winged, um, calling insecty things. Okay. Now we have a little bit of uh, an, uh, an aside, or a little bit, you know, we've been kind of marching through these types of animals and, and what creatures that are okay to eat. Um, but now we have kind of a pause here for emphasis on what's important about all of this. And so it's kind of like chewing the cud bringing you back up and, you know, ruminating on it for just a little bit here, okay? God wants to pause and make sure that we're getting some important things. Verse 24, 
by these things you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries any part of the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. So here you can understand, this is not saying that, you know, God's not saying you're going to be condemned and taken outside the camp and killed or anything like that. It's just that you have become ceremonially unclean if you touch the, the carcasses of these types of animals and things like that. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. So they weren't meant to eat bear. Um, or dogs or cats for that matter. I don't understand why people do, but I know they do. Where's my mic gone? Sorry, guys. So, but anyway, but again, we're talking about Israel and the rules, that, the laws that God's given for them. So, um, so distinctly for them, he's giving them these, these rules. Um, whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until evening, and who carries, he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening they are unclean to you. So here he's stressing this, the Im impact of touching these types of animals, touching their carcasses and everything like that. It makes you unacceptable to approach the sanctuary. Now, verse 29, he picks up um, another category. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. Okay? So not the insects, this is other types of swarming things, like the mole rat, the mouse, and the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean. Okay, so if you get a dead lizard falling off the curtains onto something in the, in the house, okay, that thing becomes unclean. Okay, so verse, middle of verse 32, whether it is an article of wood or garment or a skin, in other words, leather, or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water, and it shall be unclean until evening, then it shall be clean. So you have to wash it, let it dry, and you don't mess with it until at least the end of the day. Okay? All right. So, I mean, really, there's some practicalness to what God's instructing Israelites to do here, right? Protecting them. Verse 33, and if any of them falls into an earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it. Okay? So if the dead mouse falls into you know, the rice bowl, and it's an earthenware rice bowl, you toss it all out and you break the bowl. Okay? I think my wife would do that anyway. Pretty much. That's it. Never using that article again. So all that is in it shall be unclean. You shall break it. Verse 34, any food that in it that could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of the carcass falls shall be unclean, whether oven or stove. It shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Now, of course, we're not talking about the expensive convection oven that you have today. 
We're talking about something that was been packed out of clay, shaped with a hollow in it that they'd put fire in and that sort of a thing. So this clay oven would have to be busted up if it's had the dead rat in it. And I think most women would agree that that's sensible. Uh, so that's it for them. Verse 36, nevertheless, now there's a distinction because it says those things, with, especially if water, if there's grain in the bowl and the water has gotten on it with the dead thing, then that's, that's no good. Verse 36, there's a distinction. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean. Why? Because there's new water supply and exchange, right? The, the bad stuff will be flushed out. Well, that's all right. But whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. So if you fish the dead thing out, you're ceremonially unclean till the end of the day. And if any part of the carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. So if it's dry seed and it had a dead mouse on it, chuck that part out and you can still plant the rest of the seed. But if water is put on the seed and any part of the carcass falls on it, well then, you know, seed hulls become permeable once they're wet. And so then they could be infected by the dead carcass, whatever it is. So that becomes no good. So you throw that out. It's unclean to you. Verse 39, if any animal which you may eat dies, so this is an okay clean animal, but it just dies on its own. Whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. Whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. So you can eat it but you're ceremonially unclean because you've processed this dead animal. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Verse 41, every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly, and now we're talking basically reptile type things, right? Whatever goes on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever may have many feet, so you're not supposed to eat centipedes. Well, the Israelites are not supposed to eat centipedes. Uh, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms. You shall not defile yourself, this is a stronger language, with them and become unclean through them. So just don't do this. Don't say, it's okay, I'll just be unclean until evening. He's saying, just this you don't do. You don't eat these detestable things. The things that, I, that God declared detestable, or if you have the old King James translation, it probably says abominable. Uh, these are things just to avoid completely. All right, now we have a real purpose statement here for all of this, verse 44 and 45. For I am Yahweh, your God. Consecrate yourselves, right? Separate yourselves. Set yourselves apart. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming things that crawls on the ground, for I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, and you shall therefore... Be holy, for I am holy. And then we have the summary statement at the end of this section that closes the section. says, this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. That's the bookend to the passage. All right. Well, interesting, isn't it? Now, obviously, we do not all follow these same guidelines today, do we? question then is, are we wrong to do so? Or is there a reason that we don't follow the same rules? Well, let's look at the reasons for the institution of dietary laws for Israel 
The first being distinguishing the clean from the unclean, as we saw as we went along. Secondly, stressing the principle, as we mentioned, that unclean people cannot approach God. So we consider all those sacrifices and all the rules about the the way that the furniture had to be arranged in the tabernacle. Everything showed that, that as you approached God, you did so methodically, offering up sacrifice, cleansing yourself, offering up incense. Everything had to be done exactly as God prescribed. And stressing to the people that, that God is holy, He is separate, He is a part, He is different from anything and everyone else. And you must approach Him on His terms. And this is a continuation of that principle. And secondly, considering Aaron's sons in chapter 10, we see that this is reinforcing and helping people to understand. They didn't observe the, the clean and unclean and the proper procedures that God had, had described and prescribed for them. So, first of all, the institution of the dietary laws does these two things for Israel, or it did. Now we look at the implications of separation for Israel. This is, this, this is the other important part of it. The purpose of these rules for food. The implications of separation for Israel, first of all, protecting them from unhealthy practices uh, that were common amongst the other nations. And we saw a hint of that there in verses 29 through, through 38 when there was concern for you know, dead things that might come in contact with with wet grain so it might be permeated and there's a distinction between the water that's sitting still in a vessel or the water that's in a cistern or a spring where they're flowing so so clearly god was considering the protection of his people on the basis of health and hygiene because there was perhaps much that they didn't know yet now i do, I, I do not subscribe and i not agree with with any ideas that that further back in history People were less intelligent in any way. That's, that's, uh, that's completely an evolutionary presupposition that I reject flatly because Scripture shows that God made Adam and Eve perfect people. They would have been the most intelligent, creative, gorgeous, talented individuals that have ever existed on the face of this earth. Everything has been downhill from there. We have not been upwardly mobile. We have been downwardly mobile. What we're experiencing in the world and what real observation and real science proves is that the whole world is devolving. Everything is gaining more and more mistakes in their DNA and everything is breaking down. Nothing's getting better. I'm sorry. We may be gaining knowledge. We're accumulating knowledge. From historical achievements, we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and what they have learned, and we take it to the next step step to develop new technology and things like that, but we're not any smarter. And we're not any more healthy, for sure. So we acknowledge that it was just simply, perhaps, that gaining of knowledge factor there, that they didn't understand everything about germs and and microorganisms and things like that that we do today. We've gained that knowledge. We aren't any smarter than them. We just have more information available to us. So God was protecting them from unhealthy practices. And these things were very common amongst the nations around them. And so as they were approaching Canaan, he was establishing for the people of Israel, now this is how I want you to live. 
His concern is that, that they're protected. As he said, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am your God. You will be my people. So he's caring for them by establishing these rules to protect them. But secondly, it's maintaining separation from the unholiness of the other nations. You see the concern for holiness as we, as we featured those, those key verses in verses 44 and 45. I am Yahweh, your God. Consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart, therefore. So there's the separation. I want you to be different people, not like everybody else around you. Consecrate yourselves, therefore. Be holy, for I am holy. Holy, apart, different. You shall not defile yourselves with these things, for I am Yahweh, it stresses that again, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You, therefore, shall be holy, for I am holy. So God is saying, this is part of this covenant that I've established with you. I'm saying, you will be my people, I will be your God. And God wanted the Israelites to be the representatives of truth in this world. He revealed himself to these people through these laws and in so many other ways so that there would at least be one nation existing on earth that maintained and preserved the truth of the one true and living God, what he's like. All the other nations have gone in other directions ever since the flood. So he's setting Israel apart through whom he can provide a Messiah and through whom he can provide the special revelation of himself for the benefit of all nations, not just for Israel. But he's strict with Israel to maintain this and to achieve this. You can see this stressed in, in Leviticus chapter 20. If you'll keep your finger here and, and go to Leviticus chapter 20, or obviously if you're on a device, you can go back to recent when you want to get back in here. Uh, go to Le Leviticus chapter 20, verses 23 through 26. So it's just later in the book, and God is stressing once again the purpose of all these rules that he's giving them, and that is specific to Israel. That you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm, dri that I'm driving out before you. Okay, you've got these, these, these wicked nations, and if you do a little bit of historical research, I mean, there's some evidence in the Bible, but there's even more extra-biblical research of what the cultures of these nations and Canaan were at this time in history. They were wicked gross, detestable, violent, sacrificing their own babies on the burning arms of an altar, this fake god, Moloch, in whose belly they stoked fires so that the whole stone was red hot and lay their infants on the arms of this, this to offer it up. It is right that God was judgmental toward these nations, that he wanted to destroy this culture. It was wicked culture. And he wanted Israel to go in not, just set, not to be like these other nations. Never to give in, never to conform. So he says, Leviticus 20, 23 to 26, you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Yahweh your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean beast, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. 
you shall be holy to me, for I am Yahweh, for I, Yahweh, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So here we have the importance why God gave all these very particular rules to the people of Israel. He wanted to protect them for their own health and well-being, and he wanted it to be very clear that they were a different kind of nation of people than all those others around them because they had a unique relationship with the one true and living God. So it was very strong, very harsh almost, the way God upheld these laws because he had very important purposes for them. That was then. Should we be following the same today? Well, let's look at food and fellowship for the New Testament church. We actually see in the New Testament the abolition of these dietary laws. They were abolished by Jesus Christ to begin with. We see an example of this in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 19. Mark chapter 7, verse 14 to 19, if you'll meet me there. Now he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. So we have a different standard here, don't we? The things that come out of a person are what defile him. So Jesus is making a shift from the, spirit, from the physical to the spiritual in his ministry. Taking everything to a different, new, and actually higher level. You see that in, in Matthew chapter 5, right? The, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says over and over again, you have heard it said, and he delivers the, the pharisaical teaching about something, which, you know, usually were based on something in the law. They just kind of had a tendency to expand on it. But, but he said, you have heard it said, you have been taught such and such, but I say to you, and then he always raised the standard on a spiritual plane, on a spiritual level. So, you know, he said, you don't say racha, you don't say I, you know, I, I hate you. That was the pharisaical teaching. He says, I say to you, this is the same as if you murdered somebody if you talk to them that way. In your heart, you, you have murderous thoughts. You're saying, I wish you weren't here. If you say, I hate you, saying, I wish you weren't here. I wish you didn't exist. So Jesus elevates the standard, brings a new spiritual imposition on it. So here Jesus is transitioning in this way and saying, you know, the, the real concern is not the stuff that you put in your body. It's what's coming out of you. What's coming out of your heart? What's coming out of your mouth? There's nothing outside a person by which, by going in him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 17, when, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about this parable. Of course, I'm taking this, I don't, I'm not providing the whole context. He said to them, then are you also without understanding, to his own disciples, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and it's expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. Boom. Jesus was the first. He's establishing a new order, a new covenant that will be established in his blood through his death 
burial and resurrection. So he's already preempting that. He's already making this, this, this spiritual principle clear that this is what God's really concerned about. Also, by direct instruction to Peter, the abolition of dietary laws by direct instruction to Peter. You are probably familiar with the context, but let's visit it briefly. Acts chapter 10. We have uh, Peter visiting with family and friends, kind of back home for a bit. And he's, he's going to have a little rest, and God speaks to him. Uh, Acts 10, beginning verse 9. The next day, they were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. It's the middle of the afternoon. It's about noon. They came to eat. Uh, he wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean, using the terms of the Old Testament passages. So clearly he knew his law, and he had been obeying it regarding dietary things. So he's astounded and horrified, and, oh, no, no, I would never eat these things. Maybe he figures this must be a test. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common, which was another term they used fairly interchangeably, common and unclean. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. This happened three times. Now we see biblical pattern. When things are done twice, it's for emphasis. When it's done three times, it's superlative. It's, it's as strong as it can be. It is an absolute affirmation of something. Okay? So God did this three times, letting down the sheet. Here are all these things that have been declared in the law, in Leviticus 11, to be unclean and making a Jewish person unclean, to even touch their carcass and things like that. And God is saying, rise, kill, and eat. And three times. And Peter says, oh, I, this can't be right. And God says, what I have made clean, you can't call unclean. Well, so, as you know, this then leads to Peter being called to visit the home of Cornelius, a Gentile, who had, who was, whose heart was ready to, to come to Christ. He was the Jewish Messiah, as they knew it at the time, but he believed that he was the Son of God and the only way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Cornelius is ready to accept this, and he's looking for better explanations. And an angel appears to him and says, send men to Peter, tell them exactly where he'll be found, and tell him that he's supposed to come and explain things to you and your family and your friends who are gathered here. And so Cornelius sends these people, and just when these visions are ending, there's knock, knock, knock at the door downstairs, and here are the representatives of Cornelius coming from this Gentile Roman soldier guy. Officer, actually. And Peter has been instructed from all of this 
you're going to re- you're going to be visited by these people. Go with them. Follow my lead, God says. So this is something that a Jewish man who was careful about the law wouldn't do. He wouldn't travel with a group of Gentile men and go into the home of a Gentile and certainly wouldn't eat with them. And here he's being invited along, and he goes and he visits with them and he shares the gospel and they come to Christ and so on. So now some of the other Jewish Christians, Messianic Jews, Jews who have accepted Christ as their Messiah, they're still Jews, but they're also Christians. Right? They, they hear this news of, of Peter going to Cornelius and his household and, and everything like that, and they call him on the carpet and they say, Peter, what have you done? And so Peter explains the whole thing to them, and we see in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, they were really trying to be very strict on upholding all of the details of the law, even for believing for, for Messianic Jews. The circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. I mean, it's bad enough to hang out with them, but you ate with them. This was, you know, really harsh criticism. But Peter began and explained it to them in order, and he goes on and recounts the whole thing. Look at verse 9. He stresses God's view on this. Verse 9, he says, But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. So he's appealing to God's own direct instruction. He's saying, I understand your objections, but this is what God said. So finally, verse 18, when they had heard all these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This was a revelation to them. They were sure that God only loved the Jewish people. They were his chosen people. They were supposed to accept their Messiah and now have this new covenant with God. They understood that. But that the Gentiles were going to be included? Those people who eat things that we don't eat? Those people who don't look like us, that don't act like us? What? God's accepting them too? Oi! Big deal transformation from this point on. Huge. Soon after this, Paul is called to become the first missionary to the Gentiles. God sends him out to deliver the message to other Gentile people. I am so thankful for that. Because I'm not Jewish. If it were not for this this critical transition, I would still be on the outside. As would most of you. Not all. So this is a huge turning point, and it's interesting that food is even at at the center of this. Peter, you went and ate with Gentiles. God's sending this this vision to Peter. What is he saying by this? Well, here we see the implications, D on the outline there, the implications of unification in Christ. We have the abolition of dietary laws, and the implication is, what this is supposed to symbolize, what this is supposed to demonstrate to everybody is that there's no longer this separation between Jewish people as God's unique people and only strictly 
but now it has expanded. There's an inclusion now that includes involves the Gentile people. There's a unification in Christ. There's no more separation. As we see, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read this whole passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, so it's worth flipping there if you can. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, as we, as we see this clear theological teaching of the change that's taken place. Now, you understand in this context, when we read uncircumcised, that's a reference, that was the common reference for Jewish people for all the other nations, for all the Gentiles, all the goyim, right? because that wasn't their practice. Circumcision was one of the unique symbols of, of, of distinction that God gave to the Jewish people. Why he chose that, I have no idea can't begin to go into that debate, but that was something that God chose as a distinction for the people of Israel. And so that was the way they referred to everybody else. There was the Jews. In their mind, the whole system was there are Jews, and there's everybody else. The whole world divided into two categories, Jewish and not Jewish. All the others are the Gentiles, the Goyim, the nations, the peoples, the other peoples. That's the way they viewed everything. All right, so you'll see this, these references, a passage being written by Paul, a man brought up in Hebrew seminary and writing to uh, the church now in Ephesus that includes Gentile people. So he's going to use these terms that were commonly used. Therefore, remember, verse 11 of chapter 2, Ephesians. Therefore, remember that at any one time, uh, sorry, that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, otherwise you're called that by the Jewish people, which is made in the flesh by hands. That's what circumcision is. It's a physical thing. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, now, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, both the circumcision, the uncircumcision, the Jews, the not Jews. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing, get this language, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both, Jewish and non-Jewish, to God in one body, Through the cross, the cross is the crux of all things. Unification, the point of unification for for all people, potentially, if they accept it at least, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is such great news for these early Gentile believers 
inclusion. Members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also have are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What an amazing theological truth. What a huge development, especially for their time when this first was being expressed. <laughs> the implication of no more separation and all being made one in Christ. You see this also in Romans chapter 10. Look there briefly with me, please. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. <coughs> I come to a point where my voice is done. Maybe God's trying to tell me I should be done. Let's wrap it up. It's because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, this is, this is what's required for salvation, right? These are critical verses that we should all have memorized. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and otherwise acknowledging the deity of Christ, and believe in your heart that God, as in the Father within the Godhead, that God raised him from the dead, therefore accepting the sacrifice of Christ as, a, as full and complete punishment payment for sin, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction. This is the important phrase here for us today. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. That was another way that they used You know, Greek was just representative of all the others, all the other nations. And they said Jew and Greek, it meant Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For, and quoting again, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So relationship with God, forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, is now, because of Christ, made equally available to absolutely everyone. Anyone who will call on the name of Christ is guaranteed salvation. There is no rejection. There's, God doesn't say, I'm sorry, you're not Jewish. You're not circumcised. You don't have the blood of Abraham in you. Yep, sorry, salvation is not free. No, it's available for everyone through Jesus Christ. And he accepts all who call upon him into his one family. God doesn't have a divided family. We're, we're not step-siblings. You know, us and our believing Jewish uh, members of the family, we're not step-siblings. We're all part of one family in Christ now. Absolutely unified. Now I have to say, God made promises to Abraham relating to the people of Israel that he intends to carry out. There were very clearly promises made to Abraham and his seed, his blood as a nation, that continue into the prophecies of the future. God still has plans for Israel as a nation. He has not abolished the nationhood of Israel. But we have been grafted in to the same benefits, the same love, having the same Father, the same Spirit, the same Lord. We're all made one in Christ when we believe in Christ. So we have all, this, all the spiritual benefits of being God's children 
in the New Testament era because of Christ. There are, however, specific national plans that God still has for Israel. So, so we cannot say that the church is the new Israel, and we don't go retroactively and accept and, and adopt everything in the Old Testament to be for us as Gentile believers today. Okay? That was unique for Israel then, and we are a new creature. We are something new in this era. I know that raises some questions sometimes, and there's a lot to be discussed there that goes beyond the scope of what we can do in, in one message today. But look at these things to think about with me. Three main thoughts. First of all, Christians are still meant to be holy. Just because God has changed, has abolished these uh, specifics of the Old Testament law that he gave particularly to Israel, and we are not Israelites, and he even abolished these dietary laws for the Israelites in the New Testament, still the principle remains that God wants his children to be holy because we are to be set apart to be distinguished as his people. He is holy, and we should reflect that holiness. And we know that this still applies to us today because God even led Peter to write that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, like you were acting like those godless Gentiles from the past that you were, but don't continue to behave like that. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So here we have this application to New Testament believers that God does want us to be different from all the other nations who do not, you know, all the other people around us who do not know God. It's not a this culture versus that culture. It's the culture of heaven versus the culture of fallen sinful world. We are to be holy. So we are to strive to please God in the way that we live. But, next point, holiness is not attained by dietary restrictions. It is the result of the change brought about by God. It's a spiritual thing. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Paul writes to the believers in Corinth, who were mostly Gentile, but there were Jewish people included, that from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Again, it's the circumcised versus uncircumcised thing. We don't evaluate people's standing according to ethnicity, bloodline, anything like that. Not the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, because you know he was Jewish and so on. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, brought together, right, us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, us being Paul in particular and those who accompanied him. But really, by extension, all who are now are in Christ, we have the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, 
be reconciled to God. This is still our message today. As those who have been brought into the family of God, to be ambassadors to all others and say, please, be reconciled to God. It's possible for anyone. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 21, verse 21, For our sakes he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was innocent and perfect and holy. And yet God put all the guilt of sin on him. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God, an exchange. Christ took our guilt so that he could give us his righteousness in our standing before God. Beautiful. Finally, therefore, we can enjoy food and fellowship as a blessing of God's grace. Enjoy the fellowship of the communion table, which we're going to observe here today. There's a fellowship in this. right? It doesn't matter what your background is. If you have accepted Christ, then you are part of the family of God and you are welcome. This is a time for us to do this corporate thing, this together thing, where we remember the sacrifice of Christ and his victory over sin and death and its guilt through his blood and through his body as it was sacrificed on the cross. So we do this together because this reminds us of what we have in common, no matter what our background is. You know, we have approximately, last I counted, 21 different nationalities represented in our little church family. Just from all over the world. And yet we come together and call each other brothers and sisters. And it's not just fake. We have a bond. We have a unity. We have a love that doesn't make sense to anyone who doesn't know Christ. I mean, not to this degree. Sure, people can get along with people from all over the world and be friends and everything like that, but we have a different sort of a bond. We have a different sort of a fellowship. It's deeper. It's richer. It's more meaningful. And we're reminded of this every time we observe the Lord's table together, that this is because of what Christ did for us. He's brought us together into one family. So we enjoy the fellowship of the communion table. And we enjoy the fellowship of gathering to eat with other believers anytime, like at Feed and Seed. Getting together with brothers and sisters in Christ can always be a blessing because of that oneness that we have in Christ. It's just a time to spend time with each other, to enjoy each other, and it's right that we should do so. Before, the dietary laws would have, would have separated the Jewish people from all the nations around them. They loved their pork. In fact, archaeologists have found a whole lot of pig skeletons all over Canaan from that era. It was apparently a very popular item. They, and so the, the distinction in the way that they eat, that they ate, would have naturally helped to divide the Israelites from them. They wouldn't be able to sit down and enjoy a feast together. Okay? So that was a way that God protected and separated them. Today in Christ with the abolition of those laws that separated, today we need to get together with anyone who's accepted Christ in particular and just enjoy the food and enjoy the fellowship. And you can put pork in front of me any day. I will relish it. All right, well, we'll just pray and we're going to observe the Lord's table together. We're going to enjoy the fellowship and communion. And um, so we'll ask a couple of our deacons if they would prepare. Let's pray.
Father, we are grateful for what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. This, First of all, reconciling us to yourself, though we were sinners and your holy God and cannot tolerate sin and uncleanness, yet through Christ we can be made clean and we can become acceptable to you. And, and we are just so grateful for that, we who have accepted that, that redemption, that atonement, that cleansing, that acceptance. Thank you, and I pray that you would help us to be always more grateful as we should be. Father, we thank you as well that you make this fellowship possible between us, not only our reconciliation to you, but you can reconcile people from different nations with different backgrounds. And, and some nations have even had historical uh, hostility toward each other and animosity, and, and yet we can completely rise above that as, as those whom you have made one in Christ. We can enjoy each other's fellowship. I pray, Father, that you would help us to, to do that, that we would take advantage of, of this joy, this privilege that is ours to be part of the family of God. And, uh, and you know, with that, we miss those that are not able to be with us, and, and we, just, we pray once again that you would restore them to health quickly, but then that you would also help them to just get back to us, that they would not be comfortable with their ability to stay home and Zoom if they don't have to, I pray that uh, people would sense the, the, the desire, the, the importance of coming together and fellowshipping in person so that we can enjoy these blessings of your grace. Father, now as we uh, observe this, this table, we are reminded once again of how you achieved all of these things through the sacrifice of Christ. And we thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to leave heaven, to set aside your glory a time to experience life in this sin-cursed world amongst the people you created who yet rejected you and were so rude to you and 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 we just are so grateful that that you were so strong and so loving that you would achieve those things for us that we might have your salvation and that we might be adopted into your family reconciled to the father we thank you for giving us your spirit that we can learn these truths from your word and that our salvation can be secured until that time when it all becomes very real and we're glorified and in the presence of the father and and i just pray father that you'd help us to be receptive and obedient to your spirit that we would be able to discern those things in your word that you desire us to continue to do to be holy people to be separate and apart and different so that people will see that we are different and that that they would desire to know why we are different, and that we might be able to share Christ with them as well. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Pastor Paul's going to come lead us in singing before we come to communion.